Let's take out our Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 9. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We've been seeing a couple of different covenants as we've come up to this point. And the one we're right in the middle of now is, is the one with Abraham. With Abraham, he starts off in chapter 12 and begins to make these promises to him. He begins to tell him that he's going to make his name great. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him descendants. His descendants would end up as the sand of the seashore, the stars of the sky, innumerable. And they would inherit this promised land that God promised to him. Well, at the time that God gives the promise, we've recognized that Abraham doesn't have any descendants and he doesn't have any land. And so he's just trusting and following in faith that God will provide these things for him. Well, God begins with that promise that he starts in chapter 12. He reiterates it again in chapter 13, a little bit in chapter 14. When you get to chapter 15, he made it official. He actually kind of went through a ceremony with Abraham. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to consider this idea of covenant and kind of follow it through the Bible a little bit because it is kind of the backbone of the story of the Word of God and the message to us from Him. Each covenant has a couple different, three different elements to it. The first part of the elements of the covenants is the scope of the covenant. In other words, who is it to? There's a variety within the Bible of who these different covenants are with. With Noah's covenant. It's to all of mankind, and not only that, but even to all of creation. All of the animals are included even within this covenant. And we'll look at that covenant here in a few moments. But then it narrows. The covenant with Abraham goes down to his descendants. And the covenant with Moses goes down to the family of Abraham that has been turned into the nation of Israel. So it becomes more limited, more specific. And then the new covenant is back to those descendants and them, and with the inclusion of the Gentiles back in as well which we saw even prophesied or foretold within the first covenant with Abraham. But then also, not only the scope of the covenant, but we also are going to consider the nature of the covenant. Some of these covenants are what they call grant covenants, or they're unconditional in nature. It's just, it's just focused on what God's responsibility, and God just says, look, this is what I'm going to do. The Noahic covenant's like that. God just says, look, I'm not going to destroy the world. It doesn't really matter what you do. He knows that the world is going to plunge into sin again, and he knows that they're going to be corrupt and exercise their sinful nature, but he still makes that covenant, I'm not going to flood the world again. And so it was unconditional. In the Mosaic covenant, God says it's a if-then covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you deny me, then I will curse you. And so it's a condition to that covenant. And we'll look at that a little bit deeper as we go through there as well. So sometimes the natures are different. Some is like what they call a grant covenant. Some is a little bit more like a treaty where it emphasizes both people's responsibility. There's usually a pretty clear sign of the covenant that we see. Like with the Noahic covenant, obviously it's the rainbow that's a sign of that covenant. 
So with that in mind, let's just kind of peruse the covenants a little bit, get the big view. This is kind of the larger context. This is the meta-narrative of the Bible as we look at these covenants and consider them together. Well, the first covenant is that Noahic covenant. We find that covenant back in Genesis chapter 9. Actually, he talked about it a little bit in Genesis chapter 6. He comes to Noah and he tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the world because of the wickedness of the world. I'm going to destroy it with a flood, but you build an ark. You, I'm going to save and make my covenant with you. He elaborates on that covenant when he gets to chapter 9. God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The scope of the covenant is for everybody. It's for the whole world, the whole earth. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow, which has been kind of hijacked in our society a little bit lately. And then we also see the nature of it, the nature of it that it was unconditional. God doesn't tell Noah, look, if you do this, I won't flood the earth anymore. He doesn't tell mankind, as long as you're righteous, I won't flood the earth anymore. He just says, look, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to flood it. And so um, it's unconditional in its nature. The next covenant that we come across is the one with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. What is the scope? The scope is narrowed. Now, the reason it's narrowed is because when the people got off the ark and began to multiply and fill up the earth. Remember, God had told them to spread out and fill up the earth. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay here. Think of all the things that we can accomplish together. And so God ends up confusing their languages and so that they just will naturally spread out across the face of the earth. But now after he does that, what is he going to do? What's the game plan for God? Well, his plan is, as it was, to take one man. He chooses Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was a Pagan, it was an idol-worshipping center in Mesopotamia. And he chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he brings him out. And it's interesting because Abraham responds in faith. And that's what's necessary really to, to experience any covenant of God's. He responds in faith, but there isn't really so much of a condition. God doesn't tell Abraham, if you do this, I will make your name great. If you do this, I will make you into a great nation. If you do this, I will give you this land. Remember last week we recognized that when Abraham took all those parts of the animal and he lined them up so that there's a path between them. That was an ancient way of making a covenant. They would do that if two nations were going to make a treaty. The kings would have the animals split and lined up. And then they would walk between the animals and they're both saying this. If I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may I end up as these dead animals. That was the force of the covenant. Well, when God has Abraham make the pathway between the dead animals, God alone goes through the path. Abraham doesn't walk with him. God is saying, look, I am going to do this. You don't really see any condition being levied on the children of Abraham. Now, what is the sign? The sign of this covenant is the circumcision a graphic visual about peeling away the flesh, peeling away the foreskin. And our, our sinful nature is referred to as a flesh within the Bible. So it's talking about peeling away from the flesh and loving God with a pure heart, a sincere heart. So the imagery is great in that sense. And God is saying, if any male does not circumcise, they will be cut off from among my people. That is serious. That is severe. Why would that be such a big deal, so severe? It's because 
it is a sign of that covenant relationship with God. God is extending Himself. He's saying, look, I'm going to make you my people. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be mine. This is the sign of that covenant relationship. We compared it before to marriage relationships. It's like, it's like our rings. That's what it's like. We wear rings to show that we're married. And we exchange them when we exchange our vows, when we enter into that covenant relationship with one another. And we usually take the ring at that time and we focus on well, the symbol of it. And it's, it's a circle because it's endless. And, and you can't see the seam because it's so woven together. And may your lives be so woven together as the two become one. And it's a sign of our covenant relationship together between husbands and wives. And that's exactly what God is doing with the children of Israel. He's saying, look, this is my sign. This is the sign of the covenant, the circumcision of my people. And that's why it's so important, because of what it represents, because of what it stands for with God's faithfulness before his people. The next covenant is the Mosaic covenant. As we look at the Mosaic covenant, or what we often call the law, that comes up in Exodus chapter 31. And what happens here is pretty interesting because Moses is told to go down to the people of Israel. And he goes down to the people of Israel and says, God is remembering his covenant, the covenant that he made with Abraham, which he told Abraham way back at the beginning, your people are going to be locked up in slavery for 400 years. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver them out and give them the land that I promised you. Well, when Moses comes down to the children of Israel, it says that he goes to the elders of the church and the people of Israel and says, God has remembered his covenant with us. And he's going to deliver us. And it says the people were just empty. They were just heartless because of how they'd been treated in slavery and in bondage. And so when Moses comes in and says, God's going to deliver you, they were like, yeah, right. They just couldn't see it. And so then what happens is God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, now don't go to the people of Israel. Go to Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh was the one through his heavy hand of oppression upon the Israelites. They were just extinguished. They were just heartless. They just had nothing in them. And so they couldn't even muster the belief to say, oh yeah, I remember that covenant. Maybe now is the time and recognize that Moses would deliver them. And so what happens is God begins to take, out, take down Pharaoh. And he begins to relieve the oppression. So by the end, they're ready to go, pack up their bags and move. And so God is remembering his covenant with Abraham. Well, he delivers the children of Israel, takes them out into the wilderness of the Red Sea, and he gives them a new covenant. Now this covenant, the scope is kind of the same. The scope is Israel. The nature of this covenant is different. It's not unconditional. It's conditional. He tells them right from the beginning. Remember how when with Abraham's covenant, God went between the pieces by himself? Not so with this covenant. With this covenant, I don't know if the leadership went through. It actually doesn't detail them going through. But when you get to Jeremiah, it, in verse uh, chapter 34, it references back to this and talks about them going through the pieces. And God said, look, you violated that covenant. You should be like those animals along the wayside because you've broken your covenant with me. God takes all of Israel and he gives them the covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that go with it. And then he says, do you agree? And all the people with one voice say, we agree. Everything that he says, we will do. And they sacrifice an animal and they take the blood of the animal and they sprinkle it on the covenant. The book of the covenant that God has made for him through Moses. And then he takes the other part of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And he, he sanctifies the people through that blood. And he says, now we've made this covenant together, so we're bound one to another. As long as you honor me, you'll be blessed. If you don't honor me, 
you'll be cursed. Chapter 31, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so you see the sign of this covenant that God gives Israel is the Sabbath. And so this was the covenant sign. I remember thinking the same thing about Sabbath that I thought about the circumcision. The Sabbath didn't seem quite as weird to me. The thing that amazed me is that if you didn't keep the Sabbath, you were cut off from among the people. And I thought, boy, you didn't take a day off and so you get cut off. You didn't rest one day. It's the sign of the covenant. This is God's covenant relationship with you as a people. That's a sign of this covenant. And so that's why it is so important. And so we see that covenant as well. And then there's the Davidic covenant. David is the king of Israel and decides that he wants to build a temple. David is living in a palace. God's still living in a tent, the tabernacle that Israel carried around with him in the wilderness. So God's still living in a tent. David's living in a palace. And David says, you know what? I want to make God a temple. Nathan the prophet says, sounds like a good idea. Whatever your heart sees to do, do it. How could God be against that? God comes to Nathan that night and says, I don't want him to build me a temple. And then Nathan has to go back to David and tell him, you don't get to build him a temple. Your son Solomon's going to build him a temple. The, the point that God's going to emphasize to him here is he says, look, did I ask any of the judges to build me a building? Did I ever say that I wasn't happy in my tabernacle? And then he's going to say, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. It's, it's not about what you can give to me. It's about what I'm going to do for you. Now, he's going to let Solomon, David's son, build the temple. But God says, you know what? I'm going to build your house, and I'm going to establish your house and your rulership, your kingship, forever. So he says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Talking about Solomon. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from me, from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he tells David, look, you're, I'm going to make you a house. It's going to be your descendants sitting on the throne, and you're going to be, your descendants are going to be the king of my kingdom forever. Now, the scope obviously is to David's family to David and his descendants, through Solomon, because it points directly to Solomon. But the sign, there doesn't really seem to be a sign. Some people have said, well, the sign is the throne itself. Some people say the sign is the giving of a son that is promised. Um, I don't know that there's any place that clearly in Scripture ties anything to a sign being of David's covenant. So it's a little bit obscure. The nature of it is unconditional and conditional, both. It's unconditional in this sense. It's unconditional that God has determined that through the offspring of David, he is going to give the throne forever. But we have this 
large gap of time between Solomon and the ruling of Jesus Christ, that you say, well, where's the line of David on the throne? That part was conditional. And we see that in other scripture passages. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it talks about David's sons occupying his thrones as long as they follow him. Uh, also in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, it makes a similar statement again. Several of the Psalms do the same thing. And they point out that David's sons would occupy the throne, enjoy the covenant of David, as long as they followed God with a heart like David's heart. So in one sense, the Davidic covenant is unconditional because God says, I am going to take a descendant of David and he is going to sit on the throne forever. That is pointed out in Jeremiah chapter 33. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, here's something to keep in mind. At the point that Jeremiah has written, the nation of Israel has split a long time ago, and you have the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, two different nations. One of them has gone through 20 kings, and the other one's gone through 19 kings, and hardly any of them have been any good. Eight out of the 20 were good for Judah. Zero out of the 19 were good kings for Israel. And so they've gone through a lot of bad kings. They're about to be carried away into captivity where they're not going to have anybody on the throne. So after experiencing a lot of bad kings, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, I will cause the righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we see David's covenant, David's promise is unconditional in the fact that God says, you know what, you're going to have, even if your descendants don't fit the bill and aren't able to enjoy the covenant, I am going to bring somebody from one of your descendants and he's going to fit the bill and he will be king. He will rule forever. Well, that brings us up to the new covenant. The awesome thing about the new covenant is that this covenant fulfills all of the rest of them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, basically what God tells the nation of Israel is you've, you've broken my covenant. And at the same time that he tells them you've broken my covenant, you've violated this covenant, that one is, is passing away. He says, a new covenant I'm going to establish with the people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant fulfills all the other ones. The Noahic covenant fills in that it's the fulfillment of what Noah's salvation in the ark was pointing to. But then when we get to Abraham, Abraham was told, I'm going to bless you, make your name great. Many descendants through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. When we get to the New Testament, it looks back at that statement to Abraham, and it calls it the gospel. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
And so the, the blessing that, that God was talking about going to all the world is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ as the gospel goes forth out from the Jewish nation, out to the Gentiles, and the world has an opportunity to be converted. What about the law? The law is fulfilled in Christ as well. Because we see Christ coming to uphold the righteous requirements of the law for one. You know, that's the thing about the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are just the tip of the iceberg. It's the beginning of the commandments of God to his people. But if you take even just those Ten Commandments, you can't keep them. It's impossible. Our youngest release kind of kid is in first grade. When I go through the Ten Commandments with them and explain to them what the Ten Commandments are, even the first graders have already broken the Ten Commandments. And they're not even able to break some of the commandments. Even a first grader has already broken the commandments. We're not able. You know what? Jesus Christ came and upheld the commandments. He is that righteous one. He's the Lord, our righteousness. And he came and he fulfilled that righteousness on our part. But not only that, you know what else came with the law? The law was not just the requirements of of how to live morally and ethically in this life. The law also contained the sacrificial system. God had him build the tabernacle and he ordained the priesthood and he had him bring in sacrifices. Why? Well, because they aren't able to keep all the commandments. And so God says, here, keep all these commandments. But since you're going to break the commandments, when you do, go to the priest. Offer the sacrifice. Innocent dies for the guilty. You have a covering for your sin. And so what do we see in Jesus Christ? Jesus fulfills the old covenant in this. That he was the standard of righteousness. He lived that righteous standard. And then he laid down his own life for sacrifice for us. So he fulfilled both the office of priest and he was the sacrifice as well. So Christ fulfills that covenant with Moses also. You know, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You realize that the law was never given to help us to earn our way to God or to be justified or righteous in God's sight. God says the law was given to show you that you couldn't, that you wouldn't be able to make it. The law was given to point you to Christ, the one who would fulfill those righteous requirements, and then lay it on his life as a payment for us as well. But then also, the law had another function, and that function was to be the guardian of the nation of Israel. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, it says, Why then the law? And the answer was, it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. You see, the point is, God was sending his son, but not for a lot of years. What's going to help keep the nation of Israel intact as a unique people? And what's going to help Israel make it to the coming of their Messiah as a a righteous, chosen people of God? The law was kind of the guardian to keep Israel until the offspring that God was speaking of would come, who is Jesus Christ. Then in uh, just a few verses later, it says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under that guardian. So what about the new covenant? This new covenant, we've talked about the the nature of the new covenant a little bit. The new covenant is kind of similar to Abraham's covenant. It's unconditional. Why? Because what did God tell the people? He said, I put this condition, this covenant of the law on you, and it doesn't work. Why? Because I give you my words, I give you the laws to keep, and you break them. You've shown yourself unable to keep the laws. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to make a new covenant, and the new covenant's going to be different. He says, I'm going to write my laws on your hearts. I'm not going to write my laws on stone anymore. I'm going to write them on their hearts, and the people are going to know me. 
and they're going to trust me. And where do we live in that? We live at the beginning of that. You see the final fulfillment of it when all the believe are ransomed and taken to be with Christ forever. That's when everybody's going to know Christ. We don't see everybody knowing Christ today. But what we do see is the Holy Spirit works in the heart of people to fashion a people that God is choosing and drawing together for himself. And he is doing the work in their hearts. You know, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul would tell us, it's God that both works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Jesus would say that nobody comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Father. It's God working in our hearts, doing his work within us, igniting faith in our hearts to draw us to himself so that we receive that new covenant and we become a part of that new covenant. What's the sign of the new covenant? There's a couple different things that that people point to. One is baptism. Is baptism the sign of the new covenant? Well, there's a couple places that are a little bit vague, but there is does seem to be a little bit of a connection. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, 12, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's saying, look, back in the Old Testament, they were circumcised in their flesh, and some of them believed, some of them didn't. He says, you're different. You've been circumcised in your hearts. In other words, you're worshiping God in truth. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You're circumcised in your heart, not physically, but spiritually. When did that happen for you? He says basically it happened at your point of salvation when you were baptized into Jesus Christ. First Peter also kind of points to it a little bit. He's talking about the time of the flood. He says when eight persons were brought safely through the water, he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying it's not the physical ritual or the washing the dirt off the body, but the faith, the good conscience toward God as we, as we, experience, as we experience that. So that's another place where at the time of covenant, like with Noah's covenant, and the t- our time of covenant, that baptism at our time of covenant, those two are connected within Scripture. But it's a little bit vague. You know where the place is really clear that we have a sign of the covenant? It's in the Lord's Supper. In Matthew, in chapter 26, when they're sitting down for the Last Supper, Jesus says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. He says, this is my... He gave him the bread that was broken, symbolizing his body. He gave him the cup, symbolizing his blood. This is the sign of the covenant that we have with Christ. The sign of the covenant that we do repeatedly, just like the Jewish people did the Sabbath day, repeatedly. Just like Noah got to see the rainbow, repeatedly. And he says, this is the sign of my covenant relationship with you. That covenant relationship that was pictured in the saving of Noah with the ark. That covenant relationship that was promised to Abraham as he was told he'd be a blessing to all the nations. That covenant relationship that was fulfilled as Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements and the sacrifice of the old covenant of the law. That covenant that Jesus fulfilled as the descendant of David as he comes to be our king. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul would quote what Jesus did here at the Last Supper. And then right after he gets done quoting it, he says, that is why some of you that have been participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of your number have died 
Some of you have become sick. You see what's happened? Remember back with circumcision? Anybody doesn't have it, you're cut off from the people. You get to the Sabbath day, you don't keep the Sabbath, you're cut off from the people. We get to the New Testament, and these people sit down to observe the Lord's Supper, and the Bible says that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a very ungodly way. And he says, you know what, that's exactly why some of you have died and some of you are sick. What is God doing? He's protecting his sign of the covenant. That's why he tells us in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, when you come before the Lord's Supper and to participate in the Lord's Supper, let every person examine themselves. Now, what are you supposed to look for? One, have you entered that covenant? This eating this bread and drinking this is like putting on a wedding ring. This is our wedding ring moment as we celebrate this together. This is celebrating our relationship with this faithful covenant-keeping God. And so examine your heart. Have I entered this covenant with Christ? Am I believing like Abraham believed? And then secondly, am I walking in that? Because if we're not walking in that, if we're not reflecting God's faithfulness back to Him, then I think maybe we need to have a, at least a time of a solemn confession before Him and some repentance before maybe we should participate in these elements. This is like one of those special days, one of those special moments when you recognize that covenant relationship that we have with Jesus Christ.